0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, September 14th. I'm Marco Werman. Anti-American protests spread further across the Mideast. But this Arab Spring activist says there is a silver
1: lining. More than anything, I'm encouraged, despite all the doom and gloom, by the voices coming out of the region. And there are a lot of them condemning the actions. And these are Muslims who are saying, this is wrong and does not represent us. Plus
2: a cartoonist take on freedom of speech. I always say that you can judge the maturity of a
3: society by the amount of satire it can endure. MRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Anti-American protests spread further around the globe today. From Tunisia and Sudan to Bangladesh and Indonesia, Muslims vented their anger at the now infamous film that offends their faith. In Egypt, it was a four straight day of riots over the movie. Earlier today, we spoke with Washington Post correspondent Michael Berenbaum in Cairo. He was keeping tabs
4: on events across the region. In Khartoum, in Sudan, there are about 5,000 protesters who have uh, stormed both the German and British embassies. Apparently, they're at the American embassy right now. In Tunis, there are uh, protesters around the U.S. embassy there. Gaza City, Jerusalem, several cities in Iraq in Lebanon, in in Tripoli, a Kentucky fried chicken restaurant was burned down. That's Tripoli, Lebanon, yeah. Tripoli, Lebanon, yes. In Sana'a, in Yemen, there were also fairly large protests a day after yesterday when protesters stormed the the U.S. embassy there and and looted some of the buildings. There, the uh, security forces were using live fire, this time shooting into the air, not at protesters, but a uh, uh, stringer that we have there said that two of the soldiers told him they had been ordered to use live fire against the protesters if they came too close to the embassy.
0: Now, today in Cairo, where you are, uh, Michael, uh, 5,000 people turned out, uh, we, we read, at uh, Tahrir Square. But earlier today, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, announced the cancellation of national demonstrations where it had been uh, of a million-man march. Why did the Muslim Brotherhood do that, and did it make any difference?
4: Well, the Muslim Brotherhood and President Mohamed Morsi, who is a member, are clearly trying to figure out the right balance between appealing to their quite conservative base, their conservative Islamic base, and the pressures of newly being world leaders. You even see it in differences between their English language uh, presence and, and their Arabic language presence, the Arabic language Twitter feed, for example, has been quite a bit more anti-American, more anti-film than their English language Twitter feed, which has been fairly conciliatory and apologetic for the attacks on the embassy here in Cairo.
0: How have the security forces in Cairo reacted to those who have gathered at Tahrir Square?
4: There's been a lot of tear gas. Overnight, the security forces constructed very large concrete walls that sealed off some of the streets around the embassy to keep protesters in Tahrir Square farther away from the embassy compound. But uh, on Tuesday, when all of this started, a lot of people near the embassy really were quite surprised at how minimal the security presence was. And that, again, was when uh, protesters wound up scaling the wall to the embassy and pulling down an American flag and destroying it. And that really, I think, upset a lot of American diplomats and, frankly, a lot of Egyptians.
0: You know, President Morsi continues to plead for calm. It really does seem like things in Egypt were in kind of a tinderbox state, just waiting for one thing to happen. And this video uh, led to it. It, it. Am I wrong in that?
4: Well, I think that's true. That's something that is is always true in, in Egypt. To a certain extent, there is a tremendous reservoir of anti-American feeling here that a, a single fringe film could set off this much uh, controversy and violence, both here in Cairo and in the region, clearly shows uh, the degree to which people are suspicious and fearful and unhappy with the United States.
0: Michael Birnbaum of The Washington Post, speaking with us from Cairo. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. One of the many places where there have been anti-American protests this week is Mauritania. Nasser Wadadi is a native of Mauritania, though he grew up in Libya and Syria. Wadadi came to the U.S. as a refugee in 2000. He's now with the American Islamic Congress's Hands Across the Mideast east Support Alliance, or HAMSA. Through Twitter, Facebook, and blogs, Wadadi helped train a core group of activists who led last year's Arab Spring. That work has led some to describe him as the muse philosopher of the uprisings. Now Wadadi says he feels deeply connected to the events unfolding in the Middle East and North Africa.
1: When the events started, it was a very emotional uh, moment for me because finally everything that I had aspired for, trained for, was finally materializing. Arabs across the region, and non-Arabs for that matter, are rising against these dictatorships. So it was very personal for me and On a side note, I came to the United States as a political asylee because of my political opinions back home, and everything clicked all of a sudden.
0: So given the recent violence in Libya and uh, Egypt and uh, elsewhere this week, is that personal for you, too, then?
1: Absolutely. And let me share with you a story. Uh, In 1977, my father was the Mauritanian ambassador in Libya. And Muammar al at the time had uh, basically incited a mob to go over and protest at the U.S. Embassy. And they started smashing it, and they were in the process. Actually, some people got in. So my father offered the U.S. ambassador at the time, Richard Murphy, and his staff refuge in our compound. And I ended up getting myself asylum, ironically, and seeing that... The Islamist rebel rousers uh, were taking advantage of people's religious fervor to score political points and ultimately ruin the people-to-people relationship that was finally going back on track after the Arab uprisings between the peoples of the region and the United States. That was deeply hurtful. Given especially my other than my extracurricular activities on Twitter, my professional activities as uh, the outreach director for the American Islamic Congress.
0: So I'd like to know what uh, your sense is of what's happening right now. I mean, have these riots this week kind of put the Arab Spring or the Arab uprising, whatever you want to call it, off track?
1: I do believe that these events this week are a stark reminder that the real challenge that we're facing is not so much the wave of violence, but the mindset uh, behind them that would take another generation to change. And I think more importantly, what needs to be stated very clearly is that we know who whipped up this frenzy. It was no news for two months until an Egyptian satellite channel started whipping frenzy. Those are the responsible parties for this, and they need to be held accountable.
0: And and yet those people really, as many people have said, are a small minority. So how do you counter the influence of a small minority?
1: I think that uh, the most effective way in the short term, we need TV channels to do exactly the same thing that they're doing but in the opposite direction, to check uh, their discourse and provide an alternative point of view. It's not the lack for enlightened and liberal Arabs. They're out there by the bucket load. What is lacking is the funding and the resources to allow these people to mount these kind of responses.
0: So I imagine you've been in contact with uh, people in the region this week after the violence has erupted. Uh, um, What are you telling them? What advice are you sharing with them? Are they saying to you, Nasser Wadada, you told us this is going to be a great, bright future, and now look what's happening. What do we do now?
1: I actually heard voices like that, and um, more than anything, I'm encouraged despite all the doom and gloom by the voices coming out of the region, and there are a lot of them condemning the actions. The bright future lies in people's willingness and ability to stand for these very freedoms.
0: Nasser, any regret at all over your helping to let the democracy genie out of the bottle?
1: In the words of one of the companions of uh, Imam Ali, peace be upon him, before the battle of Karbala, knowing that he was facing death, Al-Hur said that if he were to be killed that day, and resurrected, he would do it again, all over again. I say the same. I will do it uh, all over again, and I do not regret one bit of it because history is on our side.
0: Nasser Wadadi is outreach director with the group Hamsa, or Hands Across the MIDI Support Alliance. It's an initiative of the American Islamic Congress. Nasser, thank you very much
1: for coming to the studio. It's a pleasure to be with you, Marco, today.
0: I also asked Nasser Wadati just how you do encourage democracy in regions not accustomed to it. You can hear his answer at theworld.org. The bodies of the four Americans killed in Libya on Tuesday arrived back in the U.S. today. President Obama spoke at the ceremony in their honor at a military base outside Washington. The president has vowed those who killed U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens and three of his staff in Libya will be brought to justice. And as the BBC's Rana Jawad tells us from Tripoli, Libyan authorities say they've arrested a number of suspects.
5: There have been reports floating around of four being arrested. However, we haven't been able To verify this. We know that a number of arrests have been made. Uh, We've heard from the prime minister uh, saying there will be further arrests and uh, they are being interrogated. That's all we've been given so far.
0: Right. So uh, the White House said today that uh, there was no actionable intelligence in advance about the Libya attack. That would seem to decrease the likelihood of of it being coordinated, this attack. What, What are the Libyans saying about that right now?
5: We have heard from the head of uh, the General National Congress, the newly elected 200-member council, that's uh, Mr. Mohammed Mgerief. And he has unequivocally stated his belief uh, that this was a pre-planned attack. Mm. The problem so far is that we've heard many different accounts from Libyan officials. Uh, the more officials you talk to here, the more the story varies. Uh, that's been one of the problems in establishing uh, what happened or, or the reasons behind it.
0: The, the U.S. has parked warships off the Libyan coast, and we've also heard about drones, U.S. drones flying over Libya. What have you heard about that?
5: Well, yes, and uh, today made it very clear uh, that there are drones operating in, in Libyan airspace. Uh, the airport in Benghazi was shut down for under 24 hours, but it has now been reopened. Residents there heard drones flying over. It was then understood and explained that They were gathering um, intel. The warships you're referring to, the destroyers that were sent uh, to within the vicinity of Libyan waters, as U.S. officials have put it so far, uh, they say that it's for a precautionary measure.
0: You know, despite the various theories and storylines from uh, the Libyan government, they say they're making good progress. I mean, how much pressure are they under to get a result here?
5: They're under a lot of pressure. It's still a new government, and they don't have a proper security force in place. Uh, Libya still has no army. They still use local militias and local brigades to help them in times of um, any flare-ups of violence. That has lessened in recent months. But there is still that issue of of no um, central authority when it comes to its defences here in terms of security. So I think that will make it all the more harder uh, for them to really establish who exactly took part and what when the attack took place against the U.S. consulate in Benghazi.
0: That was the BBC's Rana Jawad speaking with us from Libya's capital, Tripoli. Still ahead, Putin stages stunt. Journalist refuses to pay attention. Journalist gets fired. Putin invites her to tea. We'll speak with her about their meeting later in the program. This is PRI.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco
0: Werman. This is The World. One issue that moved front and center this week with the unrest in the Middle East is freedom of speech, when you have it and what your responsibility is when you use it. Political cartoonists around the globe face that every day. We're joined by two of them now. Cal is a pen name for Kevin Callaher, who draws cartoons for The Economist and The Baltimore Sun. Patrick Shapat is Swiss-Lebanese. He goes simply by the name Shapat. Shapat cartoons for several Europe-based newspapers, including the International Herald Tribune. They both join us from Washington, D.C., where they're attending a cartoonist convention this weekend. Shapat, I imagine, that the events of this week with an anti-Islam film igniting violence in Arab capitals. it's, uh, It's fodder for your pen, but it must also take you right back to 2006, when that Danish cartoonist put himself in the line of fire with a cartoon mocking the Prophet Muhammad.
6: Here we go again. We're back to the Danish cartoon story. And that that was a big story. For us cartoonists, it was the, I think it was the 9-11 of, of political cartoonists. It, it, uh, it changed the world, of course, not only for us, but particularly for us. It used to be good to say that you were a cartoonist when you traveled. It used to be better to mention cartoonists on your uh, visa application than journalists. But now it's just the opposite when you go to the Middle East or to to those countries, you, you you think twice before you you want to say that you're a, a cartoonist. I had a chance to go in in Gaza in 2009, doing some reporting in cartoons, and I really didn't want to say that I was a cartoonist. So the whole story we have witnessed that uh, the fact that you can be taken hostage by fringe extremists, you know that they they are motivated by hatred, and now with uh, with the internet, they have the capacity to to spread their message and to spread fire.
0: Kel, I'm just curious. I mean, you you had been doing cartoons about the U.S. presidential election, presumably, and the candidates uh, prior to what happened this week uh, in, in Benghazi and in Cairo and, and across the Mideast. Was there suddenly this, oh, my God, I got to drop all these cartoons and suddenly move to this theme? And then like what tropes
2: do you use that haven't been used before? This notion of the relationship between the East and the West is is really fragile and the cartoons and this kind of imagery and this sort of uh, story of perceived abuse by the West of the prophet or anything to do with the Muslim religion is really a dangerous, explosive subject to deal with. And so when you're a cartoonist, you have to – Manage it carefully, but at the same time, you don't want to avoid it. You want to embrace these very important subjects. Right.
0: I mean, it's a free speech issue, as many have pointed out. And then as a cartoonist, you have to really gauge how you
2: react to it. So do you feel like there's free speech for you? Cartoonists are really on the front line of free speech, I think, in, in any given society. I always say that you can judge the maturity of a society by the amount of satire it can endure. Uh, The freedom to say your ideas, I think, is absolutely tantamount. But how you say it always becomes the issue, whether you you are using imagery that might be offensive to many of your readers or not. Sometimes can um, then um, make people ignore the message you're trying to bring about. So often the case for a cartoon, it's not what they say, it's how they say it. You know, through the embassy
0: protests and and riots this week uh, over the uh, anti-Muslim video on the Internet, many have raised the fact that in Germany there are laws against denying the Holocaust, and that's, you know, one area where free speech is limited there. I'm wondering when it comes to cartooning, Chapat, since you work in Europe, whether there are other red lines about what's fair and what's not fair game uh, in cartooning in Europe versus the United States.
6: I think we all have our own red lines. What is important is Professionalism, I want to say, <laughs> to fight for my church. Opinion is cheap and the web allows us to, to say anything. Right. Freedom of expression is the right to insult in a way, uh, but you have now the capacity to insult anybody, any group in the world, to act, to insult half of the world through very cheap and very um, provocative comments. That's not what freedom of, of expression should be about. It's not just the right to insult you because I can, mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm here in my country where I can do what I want. What we all need is critical voices in, in every government, in every society. We need cartoonists. We need people like that. But also um, those voices have to be professional and responsible because we know the, you know, the responsibility we have. With a, It's so easy. You just give me a pen and a paper and I can do anything. I, I can do such a provocative cartoon and you know, set the world on fire.
7: Right.
0: So let's talk a bit about how you've lampooned the U.S. presidential election now. Uh, Chapat, uh, what topics and oh, themes have much, you tapped Oh, that's much easier. Thank <laughs> you for bringing that up. Oh, I feel bad. What <laughs> topics and themes have you tapped into, Chapat?
6: You know, the rest of the world is following the election very carefully. The only thing we're missing is the right to vote, actually. But, uh, <laughs> no um... taxation without representation. <laughs> the striking thing, I think, is the intrusion of of big money into the campaign. And the fact that really, this year, we have the feeling that the White House is for sale. We've been worried following, you know, from Europe, the fighting between the White House and Congress. The standing of America has has been really weakened by that.
0: Cal, how have you tapped into this whole dumping of money into the presidential race? Has it become any more tactile for you to draw about?
2: As you know, I do cartoons for the Baltimore Sun, an American domestic audience, and for The Economist, which is a truly international audience. And so I think my approach to a subject like that might be slightly uh, different for both. The U.S. audience, who's living in the middle of this year-long campaign, uh, you know, tedious um, thousand Republican debates in the spring, and then these – kind of glorified uh, TV infomercials, which the uh, conventions are, and they're both kind of bored and frustrated and annoyed by the whole process, throw the money in the now the infinite number of negative ads that are on the airwaves. It makes people really, I think, uh, worry about uh, you know where our democracy is at the moment, nonetheless, where our economy is at the moment. For the economists who don't have to endure some of this day-to-day stuff, they are keeping an eye on. What goes on in America? And there's also a bit of political theater that kind of keeps it kind of interesting of what's, what's going on in that crazy place of the United States. But the, the money in politics seems so profoundly kooky and crazy for anybody outside the country. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> Cal cartoons for The Economist and The Baltimore Sun, Patrick
0: Chapat cartoons for the International Herald Tribune, and the Swiss newspaper Le Temps. He also does longer-form graphic journalism. Their cartoon convention in Washington this weekend is open to the public, and as you could hear from our guests, it promises to be both interesting and a lot of fun. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for speaking with us. Thank you. It's great to talk. We have several cartoons by Kevin Gallaher and Chapat, including their takes on the U.S. presidential election. You can see our slideshow at theworld.org. And coming up Monday on The World, we have a special report from Sri Lanka. A mysterious form of kidney disease is sweeping that Asian island nation. A new study suggests a likely cause, farm chemicals. Doctors are urging their government to take action. We are losing the very productive crowd in the
6: country, and they are farmers. They feed us. So I think we have to save them because they don't have the ability to save themselves.
0: So why haven't farmers learned about the study or been told how to protect themselves? Tune in for our investigation from Sri Lanka on Monday's program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, Russia's President Putin invites a prominent critic for a chat at the Kremlin.
8: Yeah, I mean, I was incredibly curious to meet him. And to be honest, I was hoping to be charmed with at least a little bit. But no. No.
0: And later, the buzz around plans for a Vegas style casino in cash strapped Spain.
3: Our eyes. the world is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Russian President Vladimir Putin invited one of his critics to the Kremlin this week. Putin asked journalist Masha Gessen to come over for a chat. Gessen is the author of a highly critical book about Putin called The Man Without a Face. She also just lost her job as editor-in-chief of a Russian nature magazine. Her publisher fired her for refusing to cover Putin's latest animal-related stunt, a hang glider flight to supposedly help endangered Siberian cranes. But Gessen knew that in the past, such events had been staged for Putin's benefit, even risking the animal's safety.
8: What I feared was that if one of our journalists went along on the trip, he or she would see something that usually happens when Putin goes on one of these little nature preservation adventures, which is that an animal suffers. Uh, And then we would be forced to describe that instead of actually writing the story. And then we would be in trouble.
0: So you got fired for this, uh, not covering uh, Putin's reenactment to fly away home. And a few days later, you are invited to meet with the president. How did you uh, receive this surprising invitation?
8: I was actually in a cab in Prague, quite um, exhausted after celebrating my firing and flying uh, (laughs) in in the morning. And I got a phone call on my cell phone and somebody asked me to hold on. And I held on for a couple of minutes and became furious and then, when somebody else came on the line and said, Hold on, I'm going to connect you, I became even more furious and started shouting at this person. And I said, Would you like to introduce yourself? And the person on the other end of the line said, Putin Vladimir Vladimirovich. <laughs> uh, so the first <laughs> did you thing think I think it did, was a joke? Of course, I thought it was a joke. But he asked me for a meeting. So I sort of stupidly said, Well, I'm, I'm willing to meet with you, but how do I know this is not a prank? And? and he said, when we hang up, you're going to get a call from my administration. They will schedule a meeting. I will show up for the meeting and that will you will know it was not a prank.
0: Wow. Is this the way Vladimir Putin usually does business when, with people he wants to meet? No. How does it usually uh, work? <laughs> I don't know if there's a usual
8: I'm not sure there's a usual. I mean, part of the reason that there has been so much interest to this uh, really rather trivial meeting is that so little is publicly available about Putin, about the workings of his administration, about his behavior in informal in situations and in anything that's not televised. But it's a page out of an odd playbook. And a lot of the Russian media have been talking about this, that, you know, Stalin used to call culturally significant people to chat and try to ingratiate himself to them, he used to call um, Pasternak. Uh, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Pasternak, but there's something mm-hmm. from that sort of genre of um, addressing the intelligentsia's concerns through trying to employ personal charm.
0: Right. You're, you're talking about the writer Boris Pasternak. Right. So uh, let's cut to the meeting now. What, what was Vladimir Putin's demeanor when you met him in person?
8: It was quite informal. I had to wait for a mere two and a half hours, which for Putin is very low. It was a 20-minute meeting. I think he did try to be appealing. He used a lot of algorithms. He used, uh, you know, basically words that uh, Russian law wouldn't allow to be printed. And um, he had two messages. He had a message for me and he had a message for my publisher. The message for me was that I was wrong to have refused to cover his flight with the cranes because his nature preservation efforts are sincere. It's not part of an election or a PR strategy. In fact, he pointed out that there's no election campaign going on. I refrained from pointing out that there are no elections in Russia at all. So he basically told me I was wrong. Then he turned to the publisher and he told the publisher that he was wrong to have fired me over such a trivial incident, although he believes that uh, there should be discipline at a magazine just as there should be discipline in the army. That Those were his words. Mm. He listened attentively while I explained to him why I found his nature preservation efforts objectionable. I said, you probably know that when you put a satellite collar on that Siberian tiger four years ago. That tiger was actually taken from the Khabarov Zoo. You probably know that when you put the satellite collar on that polar bear a couple of years ago, that polar bear was captured several days ahead of time and heavily sedated while waiting for
7: you.
0: Right. So a a frank discussion. How did he respond?
8: He said, of course, I knew that that leopard was captured ahead of time, confusing the polar bear and the leopard. But he said, "Um, I've told people that this should not be done like this. But still, drawing attention to the problem is more important than the little excesses that happen. He used the word excesses twice. So he you know, he clearly remains convinced that this PR strategy is right and is beneficial for the cause.
0: I'm curious to know from you, Masha, I mean, as a kind of media charmer, he does seem to have a few tricks in his bag, but does he seem sophisticated to you?
8: No, he does not. And, um, you know, those tricks have really gotten old. I think he is using... Things that played really well in the first couple of years of his administration. Twelve years into Russian leadership, they become ridiculous. And he really hasn't pulled anything new out of his hat. Everything, you know, from these photo ops to his use of vulgarisms, all of this is very familiar, very old hat.
0: And speaking of ridiculous, did he really say, I like birdies, kitties, and little creatures?
8: He definitely did. This was his opening statement. To you? Yes, to me. You know, I can only suppose that he thought that I would find this charming.
0: Now, Masha, we should point out that you wrote this uh, national bestseller, The Man Without a Face, a biography of Putin, and you actually hadn't met him when you wrote the book. I assume you had made requests to interview him.
8: I had made requests. I believe I was the first journalist to be blacklisted by the Kremlin Press Service in Russia back in 2000. So... The last place I expected to find myself this month was uh, in uh, a person's uh, working office. But yeah, I mean, I was incredibly curious to meet him. And to be honest, I was hoping to be charmed with at least a little bit. But no. No.
0: I doubt you brought him an autographed copy of your book.
8: I wanted to, and I wanted to ask him to autograph one for me. (laughs) My family told me I would be chained to the radiator if I attempted to take the book with me.
0: Journalist Masha Gessen in Moscow, thanks very much for telling us about your meeting with Putin.
8: Thank you for asking.
0: Like Masha Gessen, many in Russia are tired of President Putin's antics, and thousands are expected to take to the streets this weekend. Protesters are also expected to be out in force in the Spanish capital, Madrid, and that is the subject of today's GeoQuiz. Madrid is bracing for massive demonstrations tomorrow against the government's stinging budget cuts. Spain's unemployment rate is 25 percent and shows no signs of dropping, and the country may be forced to seek a huge European Union bailout. Against that backdrop, it's not surprising that a multi-billion dollar resort planned for a Madrid suburb is generating buzz, positive and negative. That's because it promises tens of thousands of jobs and it involves casinos, Las Vegas style, with plenty of blackjack tables and one-armed bandits to go around. So can you name the suburb of Madrid that may be transformed into a Euro Vegas? Here comes the answer, courtesy of the world's Jerry Haddon.
7: Al Corcon is a dusty bedroom community on the outskirts of Madrid. Surrounding it are thousands of acres of dry scrubland. It's hard to imagine this spot could one day become Europe's version of this. The Las Vegas Strip with its glitzy casinos and hotels. But that's the plan. Its mastermind, America's eighth richest man, according to Forbes magazine, casino magnate Sheldon Adelson, founder of the Las Vegas Sands Empire. Adelson wants to build six casinos here, 12 hotels three golf courses, a mega-project that backers claim will create more than
5: 200,000 jobs. Adelson
7: Adelson chose Madrid over Barcelona just last week, and politicians here celebrated. The secretary of Spain's conservative popular party, María Dolores de Cospedal, told Spanish TV that any project that brings jobs is welcome. And in economically depressed Alcorcón, a lot of people agree. Liquor store worker Antonio Banduya says this town desperately needs a lift. I think it's a good project, he says. It's going to bring jobs. We're in a crisis. It'll pump some life into this place. Businesses are closing all over the place. But like casinos everywhere, Eurovegas has many detractors. A retired widow named Beatriz Pereda overhears Banduya's comments and begs enthusiastically to differ.
1: Las
8: Vegas has more corruption and
7: prostitution prostitution than anywhere else, she says, and they want to bring that here? And the guy behind this, what's his name? He's been implicated in money laundering for thugs and assassins. Actually, not Adelson himself, but some Top Sands executives are under investigation for money laundering, allegedly for Mexican drug cartels. Critics of Eurovegas recognize that Spaniards need jobs, but they say they shouldn't come at any expense. Local anti-casino campaigner Juan Garcia says Spain will have to bend too many rules to accommodate Adelson's wishes. Adelson wants to la let la tobacco la in, la he la says, la in other words, get an exemption from Spain's anti-smoking laws, and to keep unions out. La but perhaps the most fundamental of the criticism of Eurovegas is that it finds Spain betting big on yet another mega-construction project. Over-investing in construction is, in large part, what got Spain into today's financial mess. The countryside is dotted with abandoned building sites where, in better days, millions of tourists were supposed to come and spend money. So when EuroVegas backers predict 10 million visitors a year, people are skeptical. Many Spaniards say EuroVegas reminds them of one of Spain's classic films called Welcome Mr. Marshall. The Americans are coming, sing residents of a tiny village in the 1953 comedy The townspeople believe that Mr. Marshall and his post war reconstruction plan will shower them with riches. Of course, it was a pipe dream. The Marshall Plan passed Spain over. For the world, I'm Cherry Haddon, Alcorcon, Spain. In Myanmar, it's
0: difficult to be openly gay. In fact, it's illegal for men to have sex with other men, and there are no gay bars or openly gay celebrities. But in a small village called Tambio, for one week each year, thousands of gay and transgender people congregate and celebrate freely. It happens at one of Myanmar's largest spirit festivals. Reporter Becky Palmstrom has a story.
9: We've taken our shoes off to walk across the sun warmed stone of the main shrine in Tambio. The air is thick with the scent of flowers. They're offerings to the two spirits, or gnats, at the heart of this week's festivities. Most people here believe that if they pay enough respect and money to the spirits, they can make contact with them. But they have to go through a spirit medium or a gnat-sayer, like this man. He has tapered red nails and flowers in his long hair. He's also wearing a dress. The medium throws shells onto a pile of banknotes and tells an older man's fortune. The medium's telling the man that whatever he does in the future, it will be a success. Then there's a commotion. A woman guarding the shrine arrives to comfort a woman who seems possessed. The shrine guard tells us that this is not an official spirit possession. With thousands of spirit mediums in town, there's a bit of a monopoly on who can get possessed here. Only recognized Nakador, the wives of the spirit, can have a real possession. And they have a lot of freedom.
7: If you are being possessed by a female gnat, you dress like a female. If you are being possessed by a male gnat, you dress like a male. You can change instantly.
9: Myo Naong is one of the official nat mediums. He says gay men like him tend to be better at connecting with the spirits because they have both a male and a female side. This traditional belief helps make Taumbyo a unique place for Myanmar's closeted gay community.
7: Their freedom and happiness is here. That's why it's a place for gay people.
9: Naong's uncle was upset when his nephew became a spirit channeler. The family was angry at first. He says they'd never had a gay relative before, but later they accepted him. It helped that Naung's connection to the spirits bought the family a house and a car. Transgender people find acceptance here too. Tha Ma Shine Lin says she loved Tha right from the start, because although she has a man's body... Here, she can dress as a woman. She says she hasn't missed the festival in 27 years. Taumbyo was the first place she'd seen so many other transgender people, many working as Nacadors. It's one of the few jobs they can get, says U Luin of Population Services International, an NGO that works with Myanmar's gay community.
1: They only have three choices to earn their life. So one is uh, to become a Nacador, Another one is to become a beauty parlor or beautician. And another one is to become a transgender sex worker.
9: Neo Luin says the festival in Taumbyo doesn't just draw spirit worshippers. It's also a meeting place for gay Burmese.
1: If you are a gay man in Burma, you should be, I mean, you must be in Taumbyo once for your life.
9: At the main shrine, live music blasts out people of all ages are leaping, pushing and clawing to give money to the Nakadors. They dance in the centre, decked out in fake eyelashes, sparkling dresses and big hair. For one week they are the most revered people in the country, connecting the spirit world with humans. And for one week, for the gay community of Myanmar, there is no judgement. For the world, I'm Becky Palmstrom, Taumbyo, Myanmar
0: spirit worshippers, makeup artists, and a human-powered Ferris wheel. Becky Palmstrom sent us a great slideshow from the festival. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
3: PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Just ahead, music from Togo in West Africa, a country that's not especially noted for its musical output. But first, we go briefly to Mali, also in West Africa. The death of the U.S. ambassador and his colleagues in Libya this week was a reminder of how awash that country is in weapons. After the uprising there in 2011, some of them ended up in neighboring Mali. Al-Qaeda-linked militants have operatives in Mali and across the region, and the Libyan guns fed their movement. And recently, Muslim extremists of various stripes put into effect a harsh version of Sharia law in the Malian cities of Timbuktu and Gao. This week, they amputated the hands and feet of five cousins accused of highway robbery in Gao. While one of those men was recuperating in a hospital from his amputations, he made a bold and dangerous decision. He borrowed the phone from a hospital attendant and called a journalist in the Malian capital, Bamako. Then he described in detail what happened to him. That story has now been published by the Associated Press. We won't describe the details on air, but we will say that we hear about amputations as criminal punishment in Saudi Arabia and other parts of the world, yet we rarely hear exactly how it happens. It sounds as if Molly is living through a nightmare. There are some in Africa who sound alerts by reaching out to journalists. Others write songs like those on the debut album of Togolese musician Masama Dogo and his band Elike. And Masama Dogo, band leader of the group Elike, joins us from the BBC studios in Washington, D.C. Masaba, a foin to you.
10: Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. <Ahometo>. Wow. <laughs>
0: so uh, we have to tell listeners that I, I spent three years in Togo as a Peace Corps volunteer. That's why I know these, these words. But I just tapped out all my eves. So... I just want to say it's great to see a Togolese musician represented musically for a change because Ghana, Nigeria, Mali, and Senegal get most of the props in West Africa. You've been in the States since 2000, so I would guess that the music you and Elike make has been shaped by a lot of influences. How do you describe
10: your music? We use Fela style and then Bormali and Osibisa. Right, Osibisa is from Ghana
0: and Fela, of course, Nigeria.
10: Exactly, yeah. And then we we start all those stuff from Togolese rhythms. And then we add some rock stuff to it sometime. We add some distortion the, for the guitar solos.
0: That's the band Elike. Based in Washington, D.C., from Togo, Uh, we're speaking with their band leader, Masama Dogo. Masama, though you live in D.C., you often sing about Togo, your homeland. I think of a song like Foot Soldier, another wonderful tune. Uh, It's clearly political. You've got lines like, I can tell why the people are angry. I can see why some of them are leaving their father's land. You must follow news from Togo and West Africa pretty closely. Do you return to Togo often?
10: Yes, the, the last time I was there is in November, last November. Uh, but I follow news from uh, Africa in general and uh, from Togo also. And then, um, yeah, I, I base a lot of uh, my inspiration on what is happening in the, in the continent.
11: And-
0: That's the song Foot Soldier from the album by Elike called Between Two Worlds. Uh, Masama Dogo, you feature on Between Two Worlds, uh, the debut release from Elike, the Malian guitarist Vio Farkature, the son of Ali Farkature. He's been on uh, this program several times, and I know he's distressed right now about the situation in his country of Mali. Did you two discuss politics?
10: Um, last time I talked to him, um, that's first when stuff were uh, happening in, uh, in Mali and I called him, I, he was really confused, but, uh, we, we haven't discussed politics, uh, a lot. Um, the last time I was there also in November, it was a really great place. When I came back to Togo, I was like, wow, Mali is really great. Mm. And then I came to the U S and then a few months later, I was like, whoa, that's not possible. And yeah. then they have the coup. And then after that, there's the rebels that took the north of the country.
0: Finally, let me ask you about the situation in your own country, in Togo. We recently heard about, uh, last month, the powerful businesswomen of Togo staging a sex strike until the current president steps down. And for those who don't know, the president is uh, the son of Nasingbe Yadamo, who ruled Togo for nearly 40 years. And so the family dynasty continues. W- what were your thoughts when you read about what these women were trying to do?
10: I was not surprised. Um, I think in Africa, women do that um, sometimes. Sometimes it's their last result to a situation. But talking about the situation in Togo, I just really think people from uh, uh, my country are really tired of that government. I mean, they've been around for a really long time, for 40 years. I just think it's true that we in Togo, we don't have oil and everything, but I think other countries should pay attention to what's happening there. The people there are really... They are in really bad situations, you know, um, right. because they have been really oppressed by that government. The
0: The sex strike didn't seem to achieve its goals. I mean, Forg Nasingbe, the president, is still there. Do, do you think Togolese will continue to push to see him leave power? I mean, is this something you want to address on your next album? Can you protest yourself in music?
10: Yes, we're trying to do that, but, I mean... It's going to be tough to get that guy out of power because it's clear that, you know, they have a backing of countries like the U.S. and then and, and France. So, I mean, you've been in Togo maybe for a long time. If you go back there, things are really worse there. Yeah. And Last time I went in November, I was like, this is not possible. But again, I'm sure this guy's going to be there for a long time because people who are protesting, they have no backing from anybody. You know, they are just left to themselves.
0: Masuma, let's go out with uh, the song "Alonjé." This is a tune you perform with guitars via Touré. If I remember correctly, in Eve, uh, "Alonjé" means something about sleeping or sleep.
10: I uh, no. No. I, I know, yeah, going gonna mean sleeping, but this is "Alonjé." That's my my my, my hand. Oh, okay, so I
0: wasn't totally off. I just didn't pronounce it right or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Masuma Dogo, singer and band leader of the band Elike Dogolo.
10: Wow,
11: man, you made my day loñera <laughs>
0: The album is called Between Two Worlds. You can watch a music video of Massimo Dogo and his band Elike at theworld.org. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. Gatesfoundation.org by the Henry Luce Foundation, for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International